Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. The generosity of listeners like you allows us to offer ministry programming designed to reach people around the world. If you'd like to partner with us in an ongoing way or by giving a one-time gift, please visit our website, newlifecs.net, and click on Give. There you'll find information to give online, by text message, or by mail. Thank you, and enjoy the following message. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware of all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygeus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Oniferous. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant to him find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you will know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. The only thing more difficult than suffering is suffering while you're being crushed by shame. Back in 2005, a young crooked cop named Andrew Collins falsely accused a young man named Jamel McGee of selling drugs. Collins arrested him and McGee went to jail for four years, suffering for a crime that he didn't commit and dealing with the shame of going to prison. Well, after those four years, Collins himself was arrested and imprisoned for falsifying police reports for stealing and for planting drugs on suspects. And he too went to prison, and McGee then, who was serving a 10-year sentence, was released on that evidence. But during this time, God was at work in both of these men's lives, and after Collins, the crooked police officer, got out of jail, he went to work at a faith-based coffee shop named Mosaic, where McGee was also working. Collins apologized and asked for McGee's forgiveness, and he wept. He broke down and wept when McGee forgave him. He realized the suffering and the shame that he had caused him through his lies and through his crime. And the Lord has worked so powerfully in these men's lives that the two men are now good friends. They actually go around the country sharing their testimony together uh, that's shared in a book that they wrote together called Convicted. It's a powerful story of forgiveness and redemption. See, Jamel McGee committed no crime, but he suffered for four years in prison and he experienced the shame of going there. He could relate to the Apostle Paul. As we noted last week, Paul broke no laws. He did nothing other than preach the gospel, love and serve people, especially the poor, and care for everyone in his life. And although he suffered greatly, he wasn't ashamed. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel and he wasn't ashamed of his fellow Christians. 
But friends, when we consider our own lives, we realize that all of us deal with the fear of man to some level. And the fear of man leads us to struggle with shame, either of the gospel itself or of our fellow Christians. See, the reason that Paul didn't struggle to the degree that we do is because Paul had such great trust in the character of God. It's not that Paul didn't struggle at all. He did. But he struggled so much less because he trusted God's character. And that's something that's going to come out so clearly in the passage today. What we're going to learn together is that when we trust God's character, we can share in suffering without shame. So let's look now at the text together, beginning in verse 8. Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And so we see here this section begins with the word, therefore. That's a linking word. It always links one passage to the previous passage. And so what is Paul linking? Well, remember at the end of the last section in verse 7, Paul was telling Timothy that God didn't give us a spirit of fear. What did he give us? A spirit of power and love and self-control. So therefore, since we have this spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, therefore, we are not to be ashamed. Well, what exactly was Timothy and what are we not to be ashamed of? Well, first, Timothy shouldn't be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. That would be the gospel message. None of us wants to look foolish, but the reality is preaching the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection makes us seem that way. That was true in the first century. It's true today. I want you to look on the screen at 1 Corinthians 1. Paul wrote, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There's no shortage of people mocking the Christian faith today, on the internet, in the media, at our workplaces and on campus. But friends, that's nothing new. That's been going on for 2,000 years. And so fear of man is a common struggle. It's a temptation that we all experience. And so Paul tells Timothy that he should not be ashamed of the gospel and he shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. It looks weak and foolish to the world, but it's really the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. But second, he tells Timothy that he shouldn't be ashamed of Paul, Christ's prisoner. Did you catch that in the text? He says, nor of me, his prisoner. Now I want you to notice that Paul saw himself not as Rome's prisoner, not as Caesar's prisoner, but as Christ's prisoner. He had that kind of confidence and trust in God and his character that when he was rearrested, and this is after other arrests, this is after being shipwrecked and nearly killed, it's being stoned, almost to death, beaten with rods, Paul still had the level of confidence and trust in God and his character to be able to say, I'm his prisoner. He's the reason that I'm here. It's because of his will. Now, as we'll see in a few minutes, many were ashamed of Paul. 
He's in prison. He's awaiting his execution. And maybe those people just didn't want to be associated with somebody in jail. I think if you don't have anybody in your life who's ever gone to jail, you could at least understand that would be a shameful thing for your family or as a friend to have somebody that you knew and that you cared for go to prison. And so maybe they just didn't want to be linked with him. Maybe they were afraid that if they were linked with him, that they'd go to prison too. But they were ashamed of him. And I think that's one of the reasons that the author of Hebrews writes what he does in chapter 13. Look on the screen. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. I love how scripture always connects the command with the reason. Why is it that we're supposed to remember those who are in prison? It's not fundamentally because it's a nice thing to do. It's fundamentally because we're all one body. When we put our faith in Christ, we become a part of the body of Christ. And if you've ever had a significant injury of some kind, maybe even a hangnail, you know how painful that can be. It's not like when you get a significant injury, the rest of your body is like, well, that's one part of my body. I'm not going to think about that. No, when one part of your body is suffering, the whole thing suffers. And that's the analogy that we get all throughout scripture. When one part of the body suffers, all of the body suffers together. So if one of us is in prison, if one of us is being mistreated, if one of us is being persecuted, we are all experiencing that pain together. We bear one another's burdens. We're all a part of the body of Christ. I think it's easy for us to forget that because we live in America. And generally speaking, things are pretty good for Christians in America, even today. Even as persecution ramps up, even as things become more difficult, it's still pretty good here. And that's one of the reasons that I subscribe to a magazine called World. World magazine is written by Christians from a Christian worldview. And one of the things that it does, it covers news all over the world, especially about suffering Christians. And so if you're looking for a way to get connected, you can go on their website or you can subscribe. It comes every other week, uh, which is about how often I can read one. I can't read something faster than that. Um, And so every other week, it's about $2 an issue. It's a great way to keep up with the suffering body of Christ in the world. So Paul says, Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me. And then he says, instead, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now understand, when we share in suffering for the gospel, we're in good company. All of the prophets were persecuted or killed for their testimony of the word of God. The apostles, Paul himself, were persecuted. Many of them were put to death for preaching the gospel. And of course, Jesus himself was crucified for claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God who came to take away the sin of the world. I want you to remember 1 Peter chapter 4. This is such a great passage because it's written to Christians all over the world who were scattered and were being persecuted. Look on the screen at what he writes. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
So Paul says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You think about these fiery trials that were coming upon them. I mean, the persecution was intense. How were they going to share in suffering? By the power of God. One of the primary reasons that God has given us the Holy Spirit is to encourage us and to empower us to be bold witnesses in the face of persecution. And Paul's main argument here in the passage seems to be that this gospel is so glorious that it's worth suffering for. It's worth enduring any kind of mocking, any kind of ostracism, any kind of persecution at all, jail, even death. It's worth it. It's worth suffering for. And you see that as Paul explains the gospel, as he lays it out here in these verses, thinking about how God saved us. Look at verse 9. He says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling. What does that mean, he saved us? He saved us from what? The amazing news of the gospel is that God saved us from himself. He saved us from his wrath that was directed towards us because we had sinned against him. We, in our sin, had rebelled against God and we deserved his righteous wrath. But he saved us from our sin and its consequences and he called us. He called us to become a part of his family. He called us to holiness, to live holy lives as he is holy. I mean, this is an amazing truth. And it gets even more amazing when we consider why God did this. Look at what he says next. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Friends, there was no reason why God should have saved us. We have not loved him. We have not loved our neighbor as we've been called to do. No, on the contrary, we have sinned against God and we have sinned against our neighbor, not just once, but many, many times a day. And yet God's word is clear. He did not choose to save good people because of their good works. Good people don't need to be forgiven. Good people don't need to be declared righteous. But instead, what we learn in the word is that God has saved us bad people in spite of our bad works, not because of our good works. And this message is pressed even further into us when we realize God did not choose to save those that he knew would choose him or anything like that. The scripture doesn't say anything like that. Look at what it says was his purpose in saving us. Verse nine, he saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now, friends, this section is one of many passages in the Bible that teaches what is known as unconditional election. God's sovereign choice before the foundation of the world to save some undeserving sinners. Many, in fact, An unconditional election is is taught all over the scripture. And so when you study the scripture verse by verse, like we do, you see just how often it comes up. It's not like I was sitting in my study this past week and I said, you know, I think I'll teach the church on unconditional election this Sunday. I didn't choose that topic and say, that's what we're going to tackle. These are just the next verses in the book that we're covering. You see, friends, the beauty of expositional preaching is that the Bible 
and not the preacher sets the agenda for what we talk about. And so today we're talking about unconditional election, not because it's a hobby horse of mine, but because it's the next verses in the text. And if you're uncomfortable with the idea of election, as almost all of us were at one point or still are today, then let me remind you that election is taught in the scripture for two primary reasons. First, God says election excludes boasting. It excludes boasting. Think about it. If God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, before we had done anything good or bad, we could never say, God chose me because, and then fill in the blank. We could never say that. Election excludes boasting because God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, before we had done anything good or bad. So the the word teaches election because it excludes boasting. It's a right understanding of the gospel. But second, the word teaches election to comfort us in our trials and our failures. Election comforts us in our trials and our failures. If we didn't earn the grace of God, then there's no way that we could sin and lose the grace of God. If he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before we had done anything good or bad, then it's not like there's anything that we could do or not do that's going to cause us to lose the favor of God. As the scripture says, Christ died for us when? While we were yet sinners. It's taught all over the word, and it's such an encouraging doctrine. In fact, this is what John Stott has to say about it. Nothing can quiet our fears for our own stability like the knowledge that our safety depends ultimately not on ourselves, but on God's own purpose of grace. What wonderful news for us. That God's grace was given to us before the ages began and was given to us as a free gift, not because of anything that you or I have done. But although God's grace was given to us in Christ before the ages began, Jesus still had to earn forgiveness for us through his life and death and resurrection. There was still work to be done. So look at verse 10 now. Paul writes of God's grace that it now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So according to Paul, Jesus did two remarkable things when he took on flesh to live and die and rise again. And the first thing is that he abolished death. He eradicated it. He did away with it. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. But thanks be to God, Jesus abolished death through his resurrection. The one thing that appeared to be final the final consequence of our sin has been defeated. It's been abolished. I mean, consider no one can cheat death. It's the one thing that comes for everybody. And yet Jesus defeated death in his resurrection from the dead. So first he abolished death, but secondly, he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, it would be wonderful just to be forgiven, just to be forgiven by God and saved from his righteous wrath. You understand that God could have done that. 
He could have chosen simply to forgive us through faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. He could have chosen just to forgive us. He could have chosen just simply to end there. But instead, what did he do? He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He gave us eternal life. We're not annihilated at the end of our lives. Instead, we get to enjoy eternity in the new heavens and the new earth with him where all things are perfect forever. What an amazing blessing. And friends, that gospel of grace is such good news that it has to be proclaimed. And that's why Paul refers to the apostles and preachers and teachers of this gospel. That's why God appointed him and that's why God appointed others to proclaim it and also to equip every Christian to proclaim that great news. But of course, when we proclaim that great news, it leads to suffering. It leads to trial and hardship. That's what we see in verse 12. Preaching the gospel leads to suffering and trial and hardship because the gospel is offensive to human beings. And human beings find the gospel offensive for many reasons. First, we find it offensive because it tells us that we've sinned against God who created us and sustains us. We find the gospel offensive because it tells us that God is holy and just and he can't simply overlook sin. He has to deal with it. We find the gospel offensive because it says there's nothing that we can do to earn forgiveness and righteousness. There's nothing that we can do to make up for our sin. And human beings find the gospel offensive because it's clear that we have to repent and believe in Christ alone, turning away not only from sin, but from every attempt to save ourselves. You see, Paul suffered because he told the truth. He told the truth about God. He told the truth about people. He told the truth about Christ and sin and salvation. And so he was thrown into prison and he awaited his execution. Paul could have been ashamed. He could have felt like a complete failure. But was he? Is that how he felt? Look with me now at the second half of verse 12. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul says in spite of everything going on in his life, he's not ashamed. He's in a prison bound with chains, deserted by nearly everyone in Asia, but he's not ashamed. How is that possible? Look at what he says. For I know whom I have believed. I want you to pay careful attention to that phrase. He does not say, for I know what I have believed. He says, for I know whom I have believed. The reason that Paul was not ashamed is because he had complete and total confidence in the character of God. You see, people make promises all the time. But promises are only as good as the person making them. So you probably know someone in your life that's always making promises to you. Promises to clean up their room, promises to do their chores, promises to pick you up at a certain time. Maybe even more significant things, promises to change their life in some way. 
But time and time again, they don't do what they've promised to do. And what happens is that over time, you learn that you can't trust them. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter how many times they promise. You don't have any trust in them as a person to keep their word. But you probably also know someone in your life that you trust completely. A friend, a roommate, a spouse, someone that you trust completely. You know that when they make a promise to you, they are going to keep their word. So the question is this, where is your trust? Is your trust in their words? Or is it in that person and their character? Your trust is not in the words. Your trust is in the person and his or her character. Anybody can make a promise. But a promise is only as good as the person making it. You see, Paul knew the character of God. He trusted God's character completely because he knew that God had kept every promise that he'd ever made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Noah and Moses and David, to the prophets, and then to his apostles. And since Paul trusted God's character, he could share in suffering without shame. Now, if you're anything like me, one of your primary struggles is living by faith every single day. And I think that's such a struggle for us because every day we're faced with the question in a multitude of scenarios, will I trust God? Not will I trust God in the abstract, but will I trust God now in this moment with this situation, this person, this thing that's happening to me, will I trust God? Employees are faced with that question. Men and women are faced with that question in their relationships. Parents are faced with that question. From the time kids are born to the time they leave the house and even afterward, will I trust God? Or will I trust in myself? Or will I trust in someone else? Or will I trust in something else? And friends, how we answer the question, will I trust God, depends entirely on whether we trust God's character or not. That's what it comes down to. Now, the reality is, some of you don't know God's word very well. You simply don't know God's word very well. Now, that might be because you just became a Christian and you've just started reading the Bible. Praise the Lord for that. We look forward to growing with you. But for others of you, you've been in church your whole life. You don't know the Bible very well. And because you don't know the Bible very well, you struggle to trust God because you simply don't know what it says about his faithfulness and his inability to lie. And so the, the thing that you need to focus on is, is knowing God's word, reading it, studying it, learning it. But I think there's a lot of us that we know God's word forwards and backwards. You've been in church your whole life. You know exactly what it says. And the struggle for you is not knowing what the Bible says. It's believing what the Bible says in those circumstances and in those moments of everyday life where you're faced with the question, will I trust God? You see, Paul's circumstances were terrible. And if he focused on his circumstances, he'd probably conclude, you know what? God has forgotten me. God can't be trusted. I've lost his favor. But instead, Paul focused on God's character. He said, I know 
whom I have believed. And we have to do the same thing. You see, because Paul trusted God, he could share in suffering without shame. That's why he can say, look at what he writes next. I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Well, what does he mean here? He could be referring to his life. He trusted God to preserve his life until the day that God would call him home or until the day that Christ returned. That's a possibility. But I think both from the context here in verse 14 in just a minute, also if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, I think from the context, Paul isn't referring to his life. He's referring to the message of the gospel. So remember, it's not just Paul that's being persecuted here. All Christians in the Roman Empire at this point are being persecuted. Many of them are being imprisoned. Many of them are being put to death. And if they just looked at their circumstances, most Christians who are alive then would say, it looks like the gospel message and Christians are about to be wiped off the face of the earth. And what Paul is saying, or what he seems to be saying here at the very least, is that God will guard the good news of the gospel that's been entrusted to him. He will preserve it, not just for that generation, but for generations to come. And friends, we who are alive today are evidence that God has preserved the gospel. Now, it's very important to note, we have a lot of Mormons in our community. If you've never met one, you're probably in the minority. Many of them live here. Many missionaries are sent here because it's a university town. We have a lot of Mormons in our community. And if you're not familiar with Mormon teaching, Joseph Smith founded Mormonism in, in the 19th century. And he founded it because he believed that the Bible contained serious errors. He believed that the truth had been lost from the earth. And therefore, he believed that the true church ceased to exist anywhere on the planet. Those are not Alan's words. Those are Joseph Smith's words. And yet, Jesus himself said, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So that's not to say anything of any other opposition. Even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. All over the New Testament, not just this passage, but many others, you have Jesus and the apostles affirming that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, would be preserved and passed down from generation to generation. And friends, if you appreciate scientific and historical archaeological evidence, you will be pleased to know that every single time new archaeological digs turn up more manuscripts of the Old and New Testament, we have greater and greater certainty that the Bible that you and I read today is the exact same Bible that was written in the first century. 5,600 copies of the New Testament exist so far today. 99.5% accuracy across them. 5,600. The next closest ancient document is Homer's writing. 600 copies, only 95% accuracy. We only have reason to believe that God has done exactly what he has promised to do. Preserve his gospel for generations to come. So Paul says, for all of these reasons and many more, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of my chains. And Timothy, you shouldn't be either. Instead, what should Timothy do? Look what he says. 
he should follow the pattern of sound words you have heard from me. And then he says, by the Holy Spirit, guard the good deposit entrusted to him. Now, isn't that amazing? Paul is saying, yes, I want you to teach what I taught. I want you to pass on what I gave to you. But right after Paul just got done saying, I trust that God is going to guard the gospel, he tells Timothy, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. And what we learn here is that like so many things in life, God is causing the thing to happen, but he is doing so through means, through people. God is going to guard and preserve the gospel, but he preserves the gospel through people like you and me. We have a responsibility to guard it, to preserve it from any additions or subtractions. And that's the very reason that our mission statement starts off the way that it does. We say that new life exists to preserve and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist to make sure that nothing is added to or subtracted from the gospel so that it's preserved for this generation and generations to come. We have to guard the good deposit. So when we were going to open this new facility for discipleship, that's why we called it the preserve. Because that's what we're learning to do together is preserve the gospel so that we can proclaim it, so that we can declare this good news. So without shame, Timothy, as well as you and me, we have to guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to us. And we do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's not ashamed. He doesn't want Timothy to be ashamed. But there were people who were ashamed. Look with me now at verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. See, when Paul was arrested, so many people turned away from him that he could say, all who are in Asia turned away from me. Well, Paul is speaking about Asia as they described it in the first century, so that's going to include all of Turkey. Turkey today is kind of a, a blended nation. You've got the western half that's more European and the eastern half that's more Asian, but in the first century, they just kind of considered that Asia. Well, so it's obviously hyperbole because Timothy hadn't turned away from Paul and Timothy lived in Ephesus. He lived right there. But I think what Paul is saying is that even if every single person didn't turn away from him, so many people, perhaps so many leaders like Phygelus and Hermogenes, they had turned away from Paul that it seemed that everybody had left him. He was basically alone. And if you know the history of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, that's just so sad he spent longer in Ephesus than he spent in any other city. Apart from the many follow-up visits that he did, he was there for three years, preaching the gospel without charge. He worked night and day making tents so that he could offer his ministry without charge to these people. He loved them, he served them, and they all turned away. Now, of course, Peter and the disciples turned away from Jesus too, and so Paul was able to share in the suffering of Christ in this way. But friends, just because we know that we're going through the same kinds of suffering that Christ endured, that doesn't take away all the pain. That doesn't take away all the pain of what we're experiencing. And that's why Onesiphorus, whose name means bringer of prophet, that's why he was such a great encouragement to him. Unlike everybody else in Asia, he wasn't ashamed of Paul. And he often refreshed him. 
And I want you to think about this. After Paul was arrested, he was taken away to Rome. And Rome is separated from Ephesus by hundreds of miles of land and sea. This is not the 21st century. He traveled hundreds of miles to go and find Paul. And when he got to Rome, the largest city in the world, he searched for Paul until he found him. He didn't go to the phone book. He didn't pull up Google. He had to go from house to house and place to place in the largest city in the world just to find his friend so that he could encourage him. Paul is so grateful. And that's why he prays for mercy for him, mercy for his household, because he, he refreshed him so well and so often. And this is a reminder to us that it's so hard to stand firm for Christ that we have to surround ourselves with people who aren't ashamed of the gospel and who aren't ashamed of us. So I think it's likely that many of us today, we, we've said, you know, I want this year to be different I want this year to be characterized by more worship, more discipleship, more evangelism in my Christian life. Well, friends, that's a great thing, but for that to take place, you're going to have to surround yourself with people who aren't ashamed of the gospel and who aren't ashamed of you. That's why membership in the local church is so critical. So you're not just attending, either regularly or occasionally, the worship services of a church, but instead you're a part of a local body of believers where everybody is building one another up in love, encouraging each other, challenging each other. We need those things. We know the commands. For most of us, it's not an issue of not knowing what we're commanded to do. It's like what Sam said, talking about multiply group. We're not surrounded by people who are doing it. And so that's critical for us. It's not just Paul, it's not just Christians imprisoned who need people like Onesiphorus in their lives. It's us. We need those people. Friends, when we think about this passage, it leads us to think about the fear of man and especially how we fear man. We don't want to appear weak or foolish to our colleagues, to our classmates, to our family members. But the reality is, the gospel appears weak and foolish to nearly everybody in our world. So for the religious people in your lives, whether they're religious Christians or religious adherents to other faiths, they're offended by the truth that we can't do anything to save ourselves. They think that we are weak and foolish for trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And for the people in your life who are not religious, they're offended by the truth that we have sinned against God and are accountable to him. They consider us weak and foolish for believing in God at all, much less that we believe that we need to be saved from our sin and its consequences. But see, we don't have to be ashamed and we don't have to be ashamed because we believe the witnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We believe they were telling the truth. And we don't have to be ashamed because we believe that the Bible is a reliable historical document that we can trust. So we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel. We don't have to be ashamed of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering for their testimonies. You see, since the beginning of time, God has proven himself to be faithful to his word. 
He has never failed to keep his word, not a single promise. And we see that most clearly in the person and work of Jesus. We can trust God's character. And when we trust God's character, we can share in suffering without shame. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to be ashamed. We don't want to be ashamed of your gospel. We don't want to be ashamed of you. We don't want to be ashamed of our brothers and sisters in Christ who bear your name. But we have to confess that a lot of times we are. It's hard to be a Christian when you're surrounded at work with people who mock the Christian faith or the Christian life. It's hard to be a Christian at school where both professors and classmates are mocking faith in Christ. It's hard to be unashamed when family members ostracize us because of what we believe. And so God, we come before you now saying that we need the power of God. We need the power of God through the Holy Spirit to stand firm as witnesses of Christ. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to make sure we don't forget our brothers and sisters who are suffering all around the world for their testimony. God, we pray this morning that we would be unashamed and that we would be unashamed because we know and we trust your character. You have proven yourself again and again in our lives. You have kept your word, not only to your people who lived long ago, but to us today. You have always been faithful. I pray that we would have that same outlook as Paul. And I'm sure Paul struggled. He was a man just like us. I'm sure he struggled, but he could say, I know whom I have believed. And so God, I pray this morning that we would be able to say that along with him. I know whom I have believed. So help us to know you through your word. And more than that, help us to trust you when our circumstances tell us, do anything other than trust in God right now. God, we pray that you would use our church, the men and women and children of new life, to encourage us and to build us up when we go through difficult times of suffering in our lives, especially for our faith. In Christ's name, we pray all these things. Amen.